Following the physicians, have physician assistants abandoned their roots in primary care medicine? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Lisa DeAndre, your host, and with me today is Jim Colley, Professor of Healthcare Science and the Director of the PA-MPH Program in the School of Medicine and Health Science at the George Washington University. Jim has published extensively on aspects of the healthcare workforce and is currently completing work on physician assistance, practice, and policy to be published in 2009. Today, we are discussing the movement of physician assistants away from primary care medicine. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. Jim, would you give us a little history of the PA profession in primary care medicine and explain what is driving the trend of PA specialization? Well, in the 70s, the PA profession was predominantly aimed at primary care practice, and the intent of the founders of the profession had in mind replacing the American GP, which was dying out at the time, with providers like PAs who would enter primary care and take up the role of primary care providers to individuals and families. And that was the characteristic of the profession for a number of decades. But as the medical profession has become more specialized, so too have PAs. What are the larger underlying forces that drive specialization by both the physicians as well as the PAs? Well, I think in a word, it's debt. And I'll explain that a bit. This day and age, both medical school graduates as well as PA graduates are required to finance their education such that they take out substantial loans and when they graduate, they're often faced with $150,000, $200,000, even more level of debt that they need to pay off over the course of their careers. This has been shown to be a fairly substantial driver of specialty choice among both graduating senior medical students who are choosing residencies as well as graduating physician assistant students. And so this debt leads them to specialties and subspecialties that pay better. And oftentimes, PAs can make five to $10,000 more by choosing specialties and subspecialties. Some of the more popular ones are cardiothoracic surgery or orthopedics, urology, dermatology, ophthalmology. And these practices are very interested in hiring PAs. They pay more, and it's very attractive for the graduating PA student to select a specialty such as one of these that enables that person to pay off their loans more quickly. This is, I think, a very dominant trend these days in PA education and in PA practice. But the PA education is still a general core of general medicine. So how does that work when they're graduating from school today and going into a specialty tomorrow? Well, I think that we like to believe that PA training is generalist in nature and that it encompasses both exposure to primary care areas and develop skills as a primary care provider, but also allows students to elect or to gain experiences in specialties and subspecialties. Our graduates at GW have several electives, and oftentimes they take their electives in specialties and subspecialties knowing that that's where the employment opportunities are. There still are required elements for all students in primary care, and I think that that's important to retain in PA education. What about the PA-MD relationship? Let's take money out of the picture. 
they work very well as a team in some of the specialties that you stated, like orthopedics and cardiothoracic surgery. And many of these PAs are just moving forward with the MDs that they have relationships with. Absolutely. The PAMD relationship is remarkable in that sense. And there are specialties such as the ones that we're talking about that really lend themselves to this collaborative kind of practice. Orthopedics is a great example. Orthopedics is a specialty that lots of PAs like to go into because many of our recruits come from backgrounds in sports medicine and emergency medical technology where they gain a lot of field experience in orthopedic-related specialty areas and then continue that when they finish their PA education. In practice, 8% of all physician assistants work in orthopedics, and it's turned out that it's a nice combination of sort of intellectual activities and cerebral activities, as well as hands-on skills that physicians really appreciate. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Lisa DeAndre, and I'm speaking with Jim Colley, a professor of healthcare science and the director of the PA-MPH program in the School of Medicine and Health Science at the George Washington University. We are discussing the movement of physician assistants away from primary care medicine. So, Jim, this is probably a bigger question than we can tackle in the next couple minutes, but why are both physicians as well as physician assistants avoiding primary care medicine? Well, this is a trend that has begun within the medical profession probably 40 or 50 years ago, and it just seems to be an inexorable trend in medicine. I think that, as we discussed, money is a big driver of all of this. The fact that specialty physicians are paid at a higher rate than primary care physicians is something that's not lost on medical students and recently graduating medical students. And there's an accumulating literature that also focuses on how difficult it is to be a primary care provider. There tends to be a lot of administrative burdens and hassles, long hours, call, and so forth. And again, graduating medical students and graduating PA students quickly learn that primary care is actually a fairly challenging and difficult area of practice and that it is easier in some senses to grasp a given area of medicine and to become very good at what might be termed a a narrower scope of practice, you know, a specialty area, emergency medicine. We've talked about orthopedics, urology, dermatology, and so forth. And the temptation to do this, as well as the financial incentives, often overwhelm any desire to, quote, stay close to your primary care roots. Are PAs hurting themselves by abandoning their roots in primary care? Well, yes, I think that there is a case to be made for that, and it involves the fact that society does expect physicians as well as PAs to meet expectations for healthcare delivery, and I think that there is an expectation on the part of the general public that there would be primary care providers and providers that would orchestrate care and that would provide comprehensive and longitudinal care. And with fewer providers going into this area, I think that we run the risk of not meeting societal expectations. One of the accusations, I think a legitimate one, that critics have of the U.S. medical care system is that it is very fragmented. And this is a sparkling example of this fragmentation. I think that we should develop incentives for both physicians as well as PAs to consider primary care practice. I think that 
developing financial incentives or increasing the financial incentives may be a policy consideration that decision makers ought to consider in this area. And if none of that happens, who will be our primary care providers of the future? Well, it's very possible that nurse practitioners will be. They have an increased interest in primary care. There's a majority of nurse practitioners that do practice in primary care areas. Very soon, nurse practitioners will receive the Doctorate of Nursing Practice degree. And there's already a number of signals on the horizon that nurse practitioners are interested in becoming the primary care providers of the future. I think that that's controversial in the minds of some physician groups, but there has not been much movement on the part of either physicians or physician assistants to increase their proportions in primary care. In terms of PAs, what we're talking about is nearly two-thirds of the PA profession work in specialties or subspecialties. Some would say that specialty medicine is just the natural evolution of the PA profession. How do you feel about that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. PAs in many ways emulate physicians and their practice patterns. They're trained in a similar way to physician physicians, although the period of time is a bit shorter. And I think that in many ways they pick up a lot of the sensibilities and the practice attitudes that physicians have. And this is reflective in the proportions that we see in primary care versus specialty areas. So for better or for worse, physician assistants are linked with physicians. And this is an area where both physicians as well as PAs continue to move in the direction of specialty orientation or specialty practice and less so in primary care. I hope that that pendulum will swing back. And it may very well be that new federal programs in workforce policy will permit that or will account for that. Are there consequences of the PAs continuing or increasing their role in specialization? I think the fragmentation of care and the decline in the social responsibility element is a bit of a negative for the PA profession. At one point, policymakers did count on PAs to be the ones to step up to deliver primary care. And I think it's a legitimate criticism of the PA profession that we're not doing it. Now, I don't think that we can be blamed too much because new graduates are simply following where the marketplace is leading them. But it is troubling that fewer and fewer of our graduates are responding to the need for primary care providers. Let's talk about the changing face of the incoming PAs. Years ago, the PAs had much less debt. Now you have to have a bachelor's degree to enter into a program. Now there's possible new certification. Things are expensive. It's becoming unaffordable to be a PA. And I think the new PAs are doing what they need to do to cover their debt. And we briefly talked about this, but there seems to be a divide between the PAs that are practicing a long time and the new PAs, and they're not quite understanding each other. There are generational differences, to be sure. Another factor, in addition to the ones that you mentioned, were the fact that there was increased amounts of federal subsidies for health professions education in the 70s and 80s. Many PAs were enrolled in programs that received federal training dollars that kept tuition at a very nominal level. A number of PAs actually had substantially subsidized educational pathways. That doesn't exist anymore as increasingly federal dollars have been cut for programs such as the federal Title VII program, which provides some funding to support PA education. In the past, that funding 
was typically tied to levels of primary care training, exposure to primary care rotations, placement of graduates in rural and medically underserved areas. But as these dollars have been cut, particularly over the last 10 years, there has been less federal incentive for programs to train students in these areas. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm Lisa DeAndre, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. And thanks for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O.com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.